All right. Now, um, I've been uh, in a book called Letters to the American Church. Uh, it's written by a man named Eric Metaxas, and he did a biography on uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So if you don't know who this is, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, uh, a pastor, a theologian, and a uh, little-known like freedom fighter uh, during the uh, Nazi Germany. And uh, he was um, a pastor, and uh, he was frustrated with the Lutheran Church. Uh, the Lutheran Church comes directly from one Martin Luther, right? And uh, given the opportunity to preach in uh, one of the big chapels there in Germany on Reformation Day, which is October 31st. Uh, so he's, he's preaching, and uh, he's preaching to the crowd, and uh, he used the text of Revelation and, um, about the need for the church to wake up. He thought the church was asleep at the wheel, essentially this, because everything that was going on around them about uh, fascism rising to power, Hitler um, doing things uh, with anti-Semitic uh, basis, and, and so uh, he was trying to get the church to wake up. And so, um, in, in retrospect, one of the things I think that we, um, we, we dabble in far too often is chronological snobbery. You guys know what that is. It's for us to sit in our time right now and look backwards and think, had I been in that situation, I would have done something better than what they did. And so we sort of wonder when we look back at uh, something like the Holocaust, what was the church doing in Germany at the time? Well, they were not responding to people like Bonhoeffer who were calling them to wake up, to do something, to take some kind of action in the face of a rising evil. And so the question this morning is, are you asleep while the same battle takes place all around you? See, though the, 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 the pieces have changed and sort of the faces have changed, the battle and the war that's taking place is still the same. Last week, we, uh, we were with... That was... <clears throat> I haven't done that since I was 13, so... <laughs> Uh, so last week we looked at uh, Stephen, and while he's um, being slayed for the name of the Lord, he's being killed as a witness, he becomes the first martyr for Christ, and he has an important vision. And the, the, the substance of that vision is that he gets to see into heaven, into the throne room, into the right hand of God, and he sees Jesus standing there, because Jesus is holding an important position. And that confirms an essential truth about Jesus and about us about Jesus' position as ruling over the world. This is a member of fulfillment of that vision that um, Daniel has in Jan Daniel chapter 7. I don't have time to preach last week. But um, this confirms that Jesus is exactly where he said he would be, that he would be at the right hand of power, that he's ruling and reigning over an inherited kingdom. Everything's been handed over to him, and all of his enemies will be made a footstool. Eventually, the last enemy to be put under his foot is death. Well, that's great news for Jesus, but it's also good news for those who serve Christ. So, Jesus' position, as well as our own, is important to see in Stephen's vision uh, that he has right before um, he's killed and he meets Christ. So, um, there's, there's two mistakes that we would be prone to in light of this. One is spiritualizing this away so that it has no impact on our lives today, right? So we say, well, that's cool. That's, that's spiritual. It's like in the heavenly places, but that doesn't really do anything to impact my, my living right now because I'm experiencing a world where it feels like there's a lot of defeat going on, right? I don't feel victorious over um, the world, even though Jesus said, I've overcome the world. So we, we have a, one problem, which is, which is to spiritualize it away so it has no impact on our, on our lives or our living. It's a real kingdom, but we don't actually experience it here on earth. The second 
uh, problem would be to, to fall into the other side of the road, the other ditch, which would be having an over-realized expectation of what this means, which means we, would, we should have no struggles in light of this. Because Jesus is king, because he's victorious, because he's ruling and reigning, we shouldn't have any problems in the world. In fact, uh, no matter what, we just name it and claim it, and we should have it, right? And so that's the, the other version, which is uh, also not true. And so um, both of these minimize the reality of this truth. It is true, but to, to, to over-realize it is to say, my experience of it here is all there will ever be, right? It says, because Jesus is victorious, everything that I experience now is victory. But it really isn't, because all of the enemies have not been made a footstool. And so it really minimizes the fact that Jesus is Lord, and that all things will uh, be put under his feet. So, so that minimizes the reality. So too does the other one, where it says, well, it's just a spiritual thing. And, and uh, it really doesn't impact how I, I see things, or how I experience things now. And so both of these minimize that reality. So I want to help us avoid that because it's really easy to slip into um, what, what I've introduced to you as Gnostic thought, which is that, that hard separation between the, the value of the physical experience and the spiritual realm. And so it's really easy to, 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 for us to fall into that, that trap because we say, well, if Jesus is overcome and he's ruling and reigning, he's Lord and he's good and all of those things, why is my experience not seem to match those things? And so I don't want to spend... Uh, so much time focusing on the difficulty this morning so that we, um, so that we are, are uh, d- discouraged in that value. But I do want to focus on the difficulty in light of that bigger picture, which is that Jesus is Lord. So my goal is first to cement that truth for you. Jesus is Lord. And then to push that into the reality of the conflict. He has overcome the world and you participate in this struggle. You are part of the battle, explicitly and implicitly, uh, whether, whether you mean to or whether you don't mean to, you are taking part in the world that is behind uh, what, what we see and what we perceive. And there's a lot of churches and pastors who are avoiding this kind of conversation. They're asleep at the wheel, a choice that I believe that they'll be held accountable for. And uh, more than I think that we'd like to acknowledge, uh, they're, they're functionally being instruments of Satan to lull people into sleep. It's okay. They're, they're, they're saying peace, peace, while there is no peace. These are the ones um, who, who, who are scratching, itching ears. And so this morning, I wanted to remind you of 1 Timothy. It says this, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So all that we do here is centered on this truth. If it's in season and it's out of season, how often should we be preaching the word? That's, that covers both times, all the time. There is no time at which point the word becomes not uh, the poignant piece of our lives. So preach a word in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why? Because the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And that's, uh, that's sort of where we, we fall a lot of times. We, we have things we don't like to hear. Uh, we, we resist truths because it's not encouraging to us. It's not what we want what would make us leave here with sort of a, a, happy, uh, a happy face and a, and a skip in our step. And the result of that is that they turn away and they're listening. They turn away from listening to truth and they wander into myth. So here, here's the reality. When pastors and teachers and churches don't preach the word, they teach messages that people want to hear that maybe do encourage us, that make us happy and feel light-footed. The reality is that they're turning away from God's word and turning towards something else. They're turning away from truth towards myths, towards self-fulfilling insights and ideas. Sometimes that temptation isn't very overt. It's very subtle. 
and this comes back to me, Christmas was the much more attractive message to preach to you this week, right? We're, we're starting Advent. Uh, the idea of preaching you love, joy, peace, and hope, those are great messages. And in fact, they would be encouraging, and it wouldn't be aside from the truth to preach any of those things to you. And yet I knew uh, what would happen is if I didn't address some of the things that are going on real current right now, that it would be like, um, you know, letting time pass and then the relevance or the poignance and the urgency you feel from a certain situation would pass. And then it would seem like I'm, I'm picking out a scab that, that has already sort of healed, right? And so the, the urgency is what I want to take advantage of. So that, that very same Martin Luther, uh, who, um, who uh, Bonhoeffer was picking up the mantle of and, and trying to encourage the, the Lutheran church and the German church and the confessing church to, to do something, to wake up, said, um, said this quote. And so I want to read it for you this morning. He said, If I profess with the loudest voice in the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. So you can, you can say all the true things and, and, and very loudly profess him, but you're not confessing him in that moment. Where if, uh, let me pick it up. Uh, I'm not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing him. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. It doesn't matter if you're off in some battlefield where the, 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 the fire is not hot and heavy and you're being a loyal soldier there. If the battle exists over here and the front lines are at each other here and I don't address that, then the soldier's worth is proved in that moment, not over here where he's faithful, right? And so uh, where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldiers proved. And to be steady on all battlefields besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches on that point. And... Um, so let me pray for our time in the word this morning, and then uh, we'll, we'll take these three verses and see what the Lord would have for us this morning. Father God, you're good, and uh, I pray that this morning you would wake us uh, from our indifference, our apathy towards um, the battle that um, we are engaged in, whether we know it or not, and whether we're participating or not. So pray that um, you would find us faithful to um, respond to the call this morning and respond to um, your invitation to uh, come to arms and to fight the battle. God, I pray that you would speak this morning through your word, speak through your servant. I pray that you would keep my lips from air and that um, you would speak only what um, would encourage us, would um, embolden us and uh, give us strength for the task. God, I ask that you would equip all of us, including myself, with what we need to receive what you would speak this morning. So God, as always, I plead that you would ask, or that you would give us what we need, which is um, eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive. And all God's people said, amen. amen. All right, so um, grab your Bible. And Arnie, I think the, um, did pro presenter go down? I need, I need slides this morning. Um, there will be in a, uh, Acts chapter 8, uh, and I'll be reading um, just a couple of verses. And I'm sorry, you're going to have to give me just a second because the slides are important. There we go. Here we go. Starting in verse 1. Ready? It says this, And Saul approved of his execution, that his being Stephen... And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church. 
and Jerusalem. And so they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So um, here's, here's the direct result of uh, a conflict that's been brewing for quite some time here that we've read now into the eighth chapter of Acts. And so the question is, is, is who or what is the cause of the persecution? Now here it says that Saul was one that was approving of the persecution. And, um, and so we need to see that um, though Saul is the figurehead of this, this uh, persecution, he is not the force behind it. He is not the singular cause. He is representing an un uh, an unseen force, if you will. And he's not taking up a new cause, which is now just, um, you know, the, the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the religious council or the Sanhedrin or the Jews themselves against the church. That's not a new cause. It's an ancient conflict. It's, it's one that's already pre-existing this moment. So Saul is not singularly responsible, but he is individually responsible, just like you are individually responsible. We are all, without exception, serving someone or something. No one serves themselves, though they think they do. We often think, I I serve my own cause. Um, No no one is the boss of me. Um, But here's the reality. There's, There's only two camps. There's people that serve God or rebel against that service. There's two camps. There are people that serve God or rebel against his reign. Right? So, so there are people that re- uh, rebel against serving God. People who are serving uh, what's called the world system. An idea that I have been trying to introduce throughout the weeks would be to talk about the reality of the world is not just the, the physical earth that you inhabit, but the world as a system and as that relates to the one who's called the ruler of this world. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't have domain over the world, it means that there's one who rules a system called the world. So Satan is the ruler of the world system, what here is being referred to. So I want to read for you this morning a psalm. It's, it's, it's not long, it's sort of medium length, but it will set up for us the nature of the conflict, the nature of the battle in which um, pre-exists this moment. So this is Psalm 2. It says this, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth They set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So so take take note of who the players are in this particular um, uh, scene that's being set up. The nations rage and the people of the nations plot in vain. And then the the, the people that are over those nations and the people that are over those people are the kings of the earth. And they set themselves and the rulers, they take counsel and they get together and they share wisdom with one another and they say, Uh, against the Lord and against his anointed one, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. So there's a transition there. They they want to burst the bonds and the cords of what it is that, that, um, that God is over them. And God's response to this is that he sits in the heavens and he laughs and he holds their little court that they get together in derision. And he will speak to them in his wrath. And he will terrify them in his fear, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's the anointed one, the king that he sets up. And I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As of me, and I will make, uh, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. That should ring some bells for you about um, that passage from Daniel 7 where the, the Son of Man goes to the Ancient of Days and he's been given a kingdom and dominion and all the nations for his inheritance. 
And then verse 9 says, And you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a, like a potter's vessels. Those, those them being the kings of the earth and the rulers of the nations. Oh, therefore, now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. So we, we have set up for us um, two, two uh, powers, if you will, two um, people that think they're in charge. There's a, a section of people, the rulers, the kings, the peoples, the nations, that sort of plot against the Lord and against his anointed. But God says, I have set my king on Zion. He will have the nations for his inheritance. He really is the ruler over all things. And so this is the conflict that has existed from the garden, right? Which is it seems like good versus evil, but it's essentially the rule of God versus the, um, the rule of, of self, which is really to be aligned with the, the ruler of this world, which is, which is Satan. So there's a clear division here, and there's no neutrality in the spiritual kingdom. There's a myth of neutrality. You think if, I don't, if I'm not aware of it, if I don't actively participate, if I don't call Satan my Lord, then I'm, then I'm not on the bad side. I'm just somewhere in the middle. Like, I, for, for everybody that, that uh, isn't an active, you know, Satanist, but is not in church, they think they fall in this neutral position in the middle. But the reality is that they don't. They're either aligned with God or they're against him. You're either for me or against you. You either gather with me or you scatter. That's Jesus's word. So Jesus is Lord. God's word is truth. And no one is neutral to this. Those, that, is, that is the essential element of what the conflict is about. That God truly is ruling over all. That Jesus is his anointed one who is inheriting the nations. And everybody is either um, falling in line with this, is honoring it, or they're in re direct rebellion to it. And no one is neutral to this power and to this truth. There are lots of people who are caught up in approval, right? And, and so that's what we see um, happening here. Saul is approving of something that's already happened. It's already been, the wheels were already set in motion because they're rebelling against what Stephen has declared to them, that, that Jesus is reigning and that, he, that uh, he's the redeemer. He's been sent as the words that he used are as, as both ruler and redeemer for you. And so um, whether it's a need for belonging or purpose or just wanting to be well thought of, we often conform to fulfill um, the need for approval from others. And we do this often in the name of witness. Well, we just don't want to turn people off to God. We don't want him to, to think that he's like heavy-handed. And so we really minimize the reality of something like Jesus is Lord and the idea of, of trying to um, invite people in close. And so um, we must be a people who seek only to be approved by God. If, uh, for everybody else that's just now tuning into the stream, they're not privy to the interview I showed you uh, of James Coates. He, he said this over and over. I, I don't really care what other people think. Of me. I don't, I don't care if people disapprove of me. I don't think uh, I care if people actually approve of what I'm doing. The only approval I need is to know that I was faithful to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He said this over and over and why he was doing what he was doing. Your, your call for approval is not called to be uh, approved by the pastor, approved to be by others, approved by the church, not approved by the media, and not approved by the history books, which is a common one that's thrown out all the time. Well, I want to be on the right side of history. And so that is, that's often used as a sort of the way to, to push people more towards the progressive side. Well, if you want to be on the right side of history, you better get in line, right? And so approval never ends where it starts, right? The, the beginning of the conflict here, even just in Acts, started um, 
pretty minimally. It was just, uh, and, and uh, at Pentecost, you know, it was sort of, uh, they were making fun of him. These guys are just drunk as the Holy Spirit fell, right? And then after that, it was, um, uh, they were, they were, uh, they were brought before the council. They were told to not speak anymore in Jesus' name. Then uh, after that, they're arrested, and then they're beaten, and then Stephen is arrested, and then he's killed, right? So it never ends where it starts, just like um, in uh, the Holocaust. It didn't start with, let's round up everybody, put them on trains and concentration camps, but it's going to end somewhere where you never meant to be. There's always a moving and a progression to approval. So wherever you thought you were throwing in with, well, I will ultimately end up and the place where you never meant to be, right? So the reality is this. If we're living to please any other audience, any other allegiance, any other authority, then you're being unfaithful. That's what Luther said in his quote. You can be faithful in every area except for the place where you most need to be faithful, and that constitutes unfaithfulness. And this is why James says in chapter 3 of his uh, his. Uh, his book, or his letter, I should say, um, not many of you should be teachers. Why does he say that? Because teachers are held to a higher standard. I can't be out for your approval, though sometimes it hurts me if I don't feel like I have it, right? And, and uh, it's sort of hard to think about the reality that if I say something, I may offend some, uh, somebody and something I'd never intended to, but I, I try my best to be even-handed in just saying what the text says. And so, um, my intent is not to scare us into submission or even to create some sort of like um, pathological conspiracy thing where you're always wondering how the hammer is going to drop, but just to see the nature of the conflict. We're not separatists, we're not an anarchist group, but at the same time, we're called to be separated. And we do have a purpose. And so we are at odds with anything or anyone who opposes the rule of Christ. So we live in the tension of this spiritual war. And that's... Um, I introduce to you of authority. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this this morning, but these are the God-ordained biblical spheres of authority as we find them in Scripture. And God has ordained a head and a discipline structure over each of these to constitute an organization. So there's uh, four different spheres. Some people break them into five. I just think this is the easier way to do it. So there's the, the governance of self right? You are accountable, and God is your direct report, if you want to look at it that way. You are accountable to no other person other than him, and he gives you divine laws and a structure, and we're told that discipline happens uh, for those that belong to him here on earth, or we get to experience all that we have of glory and grace by common grace, and then we'll be judged at the end of our lives. And so God is sort of the, the direct sphere over self, but then we also have the family structure, and God has instituted a divine structure there, that uh, husband and wife should come together and have children, that children should submit to the parents and the husband uh, should submit to the wife and the, the, I said that wrong, the wife should submit to the husband, the husband should love the wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so there's a divinely instituted structure there and there's a discipline, in fact, structure. And then there's the civil authority, which has to do with anything that does political uh, outside of the sphere of self, family, or then go to the church the sphere of the church, which has a structure to it. It has a, a leadership structure. It has a discipline structure that Jesus um, put in place for us, but Jesus is the head of the church. And so uh, we, we, all of these have a divinely instituted structure, a divinely instituted leadership, and a, a way of um, implementing discipline. And so these spheres of authority are given to us um, 
so that we can rightly uh, follow God's word. And we're told that they exist for the purpose of affirming what is good and deterring what's evil. Essentially that. And uh, if, they're, if, they're functionally, if they're functioning the way they ought to be, they're giving glory to God in doing so. And the problem is when one of these spheres encroaches on another sphere, gets outside of its intended purpose, and then we begin to cede authority that God has given to one sphere to another sphere. And so we talked about the problem of those overlaps in a different sermon. I won't go into that this morning. But all the spheres here are present at Saul's approving of the execution of Stephen. You have the government. You have the religious structure. You have, um, you have uh, all of it here. And um, so we need to see that uh, the spheres are, are meant to be sovereign for a purpose because um, uh, because when they bleed into one another, it creates issues. And so look at verse 2 then of uh, Acts 8. It says this, The devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was, uh, was ravaging the church, and he's entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women, and he committed them to prison. In uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, it says, All that, all that uh, wish to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. All that wish to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And so the, the reality is this. If you're not in conflict, it's possible that you have limited the scope of what it means to live a godly life. That's what's, so I, I want you to see the emphasis here is not on if you go to church, you'll be, you'll be persecuted. It's if you wish to live a godly life. There's a, there's a broader scope there than I think we're usually giving credit for. It's possible that you've limited the scope of Jesus in your life so much that it's, uh, it just means church. And uh, you won't probably experience persecution just by attending church, at least not in the immediate future. Or it's possible you're not living it at all. If you live a peaceable life with the affirmations and celebrations of those who hate God and hate his rule and, and uh, want to do away with his truth, who have set themselves, who have arrayed themselves against the Lord and his anointed, then you're standing with something that's wrong. If you're being celebrated by the enemy, that's a problem. So that's why, that's why the, the, the reality is if you are living a godly life, then it will result in your persecution. If there's no rejection of how you're living, then it's possible that you're not living biblically. This is evidence enough that there's uh, nothing to thwart in your life. If the people aren't threatened by what you're doing or what you're proclaiming, then it's possible that it's not coming out into the fullness of your life. We live in a hostile world, the world system, and there is a ruler of that world. And his task or his goal is to seek and kill and destroy you. So there should be no common ground that you find with that enemy. There's no appeasement. There's no compromise. There's no alliance where you find peace with the enemy of your soul. We see that when we falsely limit the scope of our, our service to God, we falsely limit the reign of Jesus to just what we do in church it, uh, it, won't, it won't come out in other ways. But look what's happening here. They're, they're going into their homes. It's not, they didn't go into the church to round it up. They went, they went into their homes and they're dragging them out. There is no separation of private and religious life. There is no isolation of religious practice from political principle. He's using the authority of the state to throw people in prison from their home. There's all the spheres right there. He's usurping all of the authority and using it to, to, to fight against the reality that Jesus is Lord. That is what Saul is doing in this moment. So separation of church and state is a myth. What you believe about God and how you serve him will 
inevitably, it must impact how you believe politically and how you align uh, civilly and what you do in your family. All of these spheres should be under the headship of God. So even if you've made some mental division in your own life, you've, you've tried to separate out, well, this is how I believe politically, and so I'll align over here if I must, and this is what I'll do in my family. If I need to compromise over here, that's okay, right? So, so you make these, these, these mental distinctions that don't actually exist. And it's maybe useful for you to go along to get along, but eventually that will progress. And those um, spheres will be violated and your false distinctions will be horribly ripped apart, right? It's useful to note that the scrutiny and censorship and oppression eventually escalates, right? It breeds hate and will produce action. Persecution doesn't break out, it is bred. Persecution doesn't just randomly one day, they don't go from nothing to we're pulling people out of their homes and throwing them in prison. It does not end where it started. Look at Stephen's own life. Stephen was accused. There's false testimony brought against him. They assassinate his character. They paint him as an enemy of the state, an enemy of the church, an enemy of tradition. And this is exactly what's happening right now. It's incredibly easy to translate hate for a certain position into hate for the person that's holding that position. If you don't celebrate same-sex marriage, you're a bigot and you're an enemy and you shouldn't have a platform. If they can paint the truth as dangerous, then they will inevitably then criminalize you who holds that truth and they will take your livelihood and they will make you miserable before they take your life. That's the eventuality of it. But it didn't start with, we're going to kill you because you hold this position. Do you see it? This is the same thing that happened in James Coates' case. It's, it's, it's escalation. And then he said, even while he was in prison, the media began uh, sort of subtly implying that he was a white supremacist, as though that had some bearing on whether or not they were having services. They impugned his character so that he became the enemy. Political ideologies are inherently religious. We, we think that they're not, but they are. Mar Marxism, communism, fascism, all of these have a highest power and a greatest good that is served. But it's not Christ and it's not God. There is some, some great value that must be served and some higher power that determines what is, what is the right action in all of these things. But um, they're not uh, separate as like a political thing that is not in itself religious. It, it is service to something. To honor one truth comes at the necessary exclusion of another truth. This means peace between any of these conflicting values is impossible. We cannot coexist with those who hate us. Now, that might sound like I'm, I'm revving us up for war. Everybody grab your pitchforks and your torches. We're going out there, right? So here it is. The reality, though, is that the spiritual war is waged in spirit, right? That is the one, um, this idea, <laughs> our, our weapon is truth. Um, in 2 Corinthians Oh, excuse me, let me get there. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Um, it's going to kind of marry where we were talking about um, the flesh and how we live in the flesh and the, 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 um, the, the conflict that we have with that and, and then how we wage the war in the spirit and experience the reality that Jesus is Lord, okay? So 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, and this is the, the New English translation. I just think it does a better job of sort of expounding some of these thoughts, Okay. So this is the NET, and it says this. For though we live as human beings, or though we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to human standards. 
If, if we were going to, to go out and, and try to overcome the opposition, we would grab weapons. We would grab pitchforks and torches and say, we've got to fight for our lives here, guys. But that's not the way that this war is taking place. And that's not the elements that are at war. Verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not human weapons, but are made powerful by God for tearing down strongholds. And we tear down arguments. So he moves from the realm of, I, I can, I'm going to stab you and kill you or shoot you and kill you, to the reality that's behind that, which is strongholds being ideas or worldviews or spirits, as they're called, in uh, other places. And spirit not as in like, woo, spirits, right? Spirit has to do with the spirit of the age, the idea that, that, uh, that undergirds a, a worldview and, and what uh, fills it. And so what we've been given is weapons that are made powerful by God. And they're made powerful by God through the Spirit. And we use those to tear down those kinds of ideas, those kinds of worldviews, those kinds of arguments. And that happens in a spiritual realm. That spiritual realm is the thing that we've been talking about, that the, the inner being that's renewed, the thing that's redeemed, the new life. That's the spirit realm. And every arrogant obstacle that is raised up against the knowledge of God. It's not Remember, the knowledge of God is, I know who God is, but as the, the, the relational knowledge of God, as in know the Lord. And we take every thought captive and we make it obey Christ. So that's how the war is raged. So for, for this week and, and ongoing for the next few weeks, I want, to, I want you to hold, hold on to that idea that the, the, the nature of the conflict is one that's spiritual. And... Um, that introduces some, some elements to us that will be useful to understand why things are happening and why they're pointed out in Scripture. Um, because the nature of the king, kingdoms and conflict is essentially a battle of domain. It's a battle of domain, which is, has to do with belonging. It has to do with legalities. It has to do with allegiances and territories and authorities and powers. So you want to think about it in the term of legalities. Who, who can claim ownership over something? And the question is whether you are under the ownership of God or the ownership of Satan. And Jesus kind of makes this real clear. He says, like, all my sheep, they, they belong to me. And, and you don't understand me. You don't listen to me. You don't hear my voice. Why? Because you're of your father, the devil. You belong to him. And so there's a, there's a legal dominion there that's being uh, pointed out. And so the, the grounds of this war are, are, are waged because of that, or in that realm, if that makes sense. And so, um, of the, uh, we'll get more into this this week, but, but how that battle takes place and, and what we do in light of that is important. So, um, it might seem like uh, there's, a, there's a need to just, um, you know, rally the troops and get out there and, and, and take no prisoners or whatever. But uh, the church must keep a, a sacred barrier. And here's, uh, here's what I mean. In John chapter 10, verse 12, Jesus compares um, the leadership of Israel and the Pharisees um, to, to a shepherd who's a hired hand. He says, um, he who is a hired hand is not a shepherd. He does not own the sheep. And when he sees the wolf coming, he leaves the sheep and he flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. So it wouldn't be just inaccurate it would be a, a total abandonment of, of my, my calling, my, my role, my duty to tell you it's okay to lie down with wolves. And that's, that's, um, that's why it's so important that even in the touchy subjects, in the things that make us uncomfortable, when we have family, when we have friends, when we have close ones, loved ones, 
that are transgressing the laws of God. That I can say clearly, and you know that it's not from a point of judgment, but a declaration of the word, that God, that Jesus is Lord, and because he's Lord, he's stated that this is what is true. And that's what the war is against. And so um, I I can't tell you that it's okay to not have a sacred boundary. We just uh, invite everybody in the pool, regardless of where they fall on that. I, I must protect the sheep, and I protect the sheep by making sure the barrier is there. The deep irony of all of this conflict is that the war is not over, um, in our eyes, uh, a territory, but over truth. Why are so many people fighting over, over things, over power, what seems to be power? Why do they obscure the language? Why do they impugn character? Why are the definitions of what we say crucial? Well, because however one sees truth, they offer their allegiance to it. Ultimately, all rebellion is rebellion against truth. And when Jesus prays for the, the disciples and all who would believe because of their testimony, he says, Lord, and sanctify them in your truth. And what is truth? But your word. Your word is truth. So the rebellion against God, establishing his lordship and his reign and his rule is about what's true and what's false. And these are the exact root of where you see the conflict taking place. God created them, male and female, and the husband and the wife, right, shall, shall leave father and mother and cling to one another. The marriage is uh, a man and woman created for a purpose. These are not neutral positions that God uh, creates life in the womb, that he knows um, each one. These are not neutral truths. Since 1973, 63,459,781 babies that were recorded have been aborted. That far, far exceeds the Holocaust. The thing that seems so stupidly easy to, why, would, why wouldn't people oppose that as Nazi Germany began to rise to power? And yet, look at this. And just this last year, we know that Roe v. Wade was overturned, and it became a, a serious point of contention. That's not a neutral position. A pro-life bill was on the docket in Louisiana, and it was actually set to pass. It was guaranteed to pass. They had the votes. It would have guaranteed legal rights and protections then to preborn babies, the same as babies post-birth. But listen to this, a committee called the ERLC, which is uh, the Edges Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission, which is an arm of the SBC, campaigned against it. Does that, does that blow your mind? Why would a religious organization campaign against a right to life because they didn't want the controversy that would have come subject to that. I told you about the Respect for Marriage Act. I think I named it wrong last week. H.R. 8404. It was introduced quite a while ago, but it was actually um, passed this week through the Senate. It seeks to redefine marriage according to the world's standards of truth. It passed through the Senate without the adoption of any language to protect religious entity. Any religious entity, individual organization can be uh, had retribution against because churches, businesses, schools, nonprofits, anyone is open to retaliation uh, to their tax status, asset seizure, being published materials, video, audio, etc. is essentially open season on the church for those who will not comply with the definition of marriage given therein. Surprisingly or not, 
the LDS church came out in favor of this. So there is a war and it's over truth. What, what does God say is true versus what does the world say is true to conform to its standard? Two to three years. <laughs> uh, if, if we had had the conversation pre-COVID, you would have thought most of the stuff even I introduced at the beginning of this was like far-fetched. Two to three years is what most scholars estimate is how long it took from Acts 2 to Acts 8. That's how long it takes to change what you know life to be, accepting of what we say is true and what uh, the world says is true to come into conflict in a way that costs people lives. Now, I'm not uh, trying to be prophetic or anything. I'm I'm just saying that our, our job is not to fret against what may or may not come, but it's to see that there's a conflict and it's one that we participate in. So our weapon against this is truth. So I want to end this morning in Ephesians chapter 6, which tells us how we can be strong and how we can fight in this war. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Those are the same arrayed foes that are defeated in 2 Corinthians by something important, the truth. So in verse 13, it says, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day. And having done all to stand firm in the very first thing in 14, having therefore fastened on the belt of what? Truth. Having fastened on the belt of truth, this is the, the essential element of readiness, is to be submitted and committed and to have the belt of truth fastened around, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness of giving, of given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We, we are submitted only to those truths. We must find ourselves aligned with only that authority and hold fast to it regardless, come what may, all for not our name and our renown and us to be celebrated, but so that God will be celebrated. And um, I'll reference it again, and I apologize for those that didn't get to see the, uh, the interview, but he said, it's amazing how many people have come to faith just by us holding fast to Jesus as Lord, right? He said, and just the spiritual growth within our own church that happened because we were willing to say that Jesus is Lord. And he's Lord not just over the easy things, but over the hard things. If you try to find approval, if you try to find comfort, you're trying to find a place to stand, you can find, um, you can swim with the, with the current and that'll make it easier on you right? But you're going you're gonna to wind up downstream, okay? So the, the reality is, if, you're gonna, if, if you need a place to stand, it, it, it can't be in kind of a, a, a weary place, a, 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 a sandy foundation, if you will, right? God's word is truth, unfettered, unadulterated, unfiltered, and Jesus is Lord. Let's pray.